0: In fact, I wasn't even sure that I would tape today. I decided I would tape, and then at the end of the day, we'll figure out <coughs> whether we'll ever distribute it or not. I, I uh, I've got three weeks here before Christmas. I don't have a series, and uh, and I had together what I thought I wanted to say, and then I lost that file, and so um, innovating perhaps in in. Tuesday, I uh, was invited to speak down at ASU uh, to a group of faculty and staff. And uh, I had some thoughts together for them. But, but when we were there, uh, part of what they were doing, and this group meets monthly, is uh, they started singing some Christmas carols. And uh, true to form, they distributed words. And and last Sunday in church was the first Sunday that we sang Christmas carols. And there's something about Christmas carols to me that when I hear them, they just, they're just one of those things that immediately launched me into a, a, a time capsule in, in reverse. They launched me back to when I was a kid. They launched me back to a whole flood of emotions for me that come with the Christmas carols. And then I kind of dribble forward, and I remember the first year. It was 1980, the first Christmas that I was a Christian. And I remember singing these carols for the first time as a Christian. And the words were absolutely the same words that we had uh, sung for years, but all of a sudden I, I saw what they really meant. Heart the Herald Angels Sing was one of the songs that we sang the other day. Let me just read you just sections of that carol. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. See, as a Christian, I understand now what they mean. God and sinner reconciled through the birth of Christ and not just the birth of Christ, but the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Here you go. Mild He laid His glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. To be born again. Well, in that, in these carols, what you see frequently through all of them, and it only makes sense because it's the whole idea of Christmas, What you see frequently through all of them is the idea of the incarnation. Uh, God takes the form of man, retains deity, comes to this earth, and lives. That really is what Christmas sets us up for. Uh, Christmas in and of itself, if we just isolate it, stays focused on the birth of Christ... At least in the areas I'm in, I try to never let anybody separate Christmas from Easter. I think they have to come together as a package. The birth of Christ, the death of Christ. As Jesus walks this earth, at one point in John chapter 8 and then again in John chapter 9, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And you've heard that and you know that. It's part of the I am's that we see in, uh, in the Gospel of John. I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. Uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's a series of them, but Jesus says, "I'm the light of the world." Yet in His teaching in the Beatitudes, in Mark chapter five, you got to really bear with me today because I am really struggling to see. I've got a little candle. The problem with this is I'm looking for a bath now, and I'm all messed up up here. So I feel like a, I feel like Grinch or somebody. I don't know what I am. I can't see, but I'm going to do my best. Mark. Oh, there we go. Mark chapter five. Jesus is speaking. We know it as the Sermon in the Mount. Okay? And as Jesus ends the Beatitude section of that, here's what he said You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's good for nothing anymore except to be thrown and trampled under men's feet. That's a whole message. We're not going to do that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. He says, You are the light of the world. Now, in John chapter 8, He says, I'm the light of the world. In Matthew 5, He says, You're the light of the world. When Jesus walked on this earth, He was the light. But now you and I are the light. Uh, bear with me here, because this gets a little tricky. I want you to see this. Jesus is the light of the world, much like, and when we speak of that light, much like the S-U-N, not S-O-N. We know He's the Son of God. S-U-N. He's the sun. He's the source of light. You and I are light, much like, if you will, A moon. Sounds a little new-agey. Thus the candle again. The candle's the key part of today, I think. Uh, Sounds a little new-agey, but what we're saying is a moon does not have a light source in and of itself. A moon reflects light. You and I reflect the light of the world, Jesus. When He says, You're the light of the world, He's saying, With Me gone, You're My hands, You're My feet, You're the visible manifestation of Me in this world. You as individuals us as a church, us as the body of Christ. Now, listen to what he says. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives lights to all who are in the house. Let your light shine men in, in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What I want to talk about today is exactly this idea. You and I as the light of the world. You and I as becoming a visible manifestation of an invisible God. We know God demonstrates His His power through His creation and His divine nature through His creation. But God didn't just start this world and then walk away. God continues to work in this world and He does it, one of the ways He does it, almost primarily I was going to say, is through His people. So in our life, there has to be, uh, with our life, a subsequent life change. Romans chapter 12, and I just encourage you to make notes of these today and spend some time on them yourself. Uh, Paul said this, I urge you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual surface of worship. He says, here's what I want you to do. He said, therefore... I'm urging you. I beseech you. The idea that word in the Greek is to come alongside. I'm coming alongside to pull you through in this. I urge you, therefore. It's a pattern that as you study, you see often in the writings of the Apostle Paul. You see it in the book of uh, Ephesians, uh, Galatians. You see it in Philippians, Colossians. You see it in the book of Romans. There's the opening section, in this case 11 chapters, of doctrine and... And then there's a therefore that becomes the practical manifestation of that. So he said, I'm urging you therefore by the mercies of God. So here's what he said to those people in a quick overview of Romans uh, uh, chapter 1 through 11. He said, I manifested my glory, I demonstrated my power, all are lost, there's a struggle in life, but you have the power to conquer sin, to overcome death, and to live a life that makes a difference if you come to Christ in repentance and faith. Now, because you've come by God's mercy, therefore, I want you to present your bodies. Probably no one in this room, and uh, we had a couple of exceptions yesterday because we had athletes there, but I, do- I doubt that anybody in this room has been mentioned in Sports Illustrated. Uh, I have. Uh, and... and uh, for a variety of things, probably. But on one specific instance, uh, years ago, during the Larry Smith years down at uh, the U of A, I was uh, working uh, with uh, some of the uh, team guys in the sense that I had done a chapel and met some of them. And I was doing a chapel up here for the ASU game, and Sports Illustrated was writing a column uh, on uh, and the U of A prep for the ASU game. And in this column, they said that on Saturday day, uh, game day, There was a guy who spoke in chapel who said, as he demonstrated a point, give your bod to God. That's back when I was younger and hip. Okay? That that was my contribution. Okay? What I was quoting here, and I'm not sure that I said that phrase, although I must have, I can't, I doubt he made it up, is, is this. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. What God said is present your life and it's because all this grace of God is true because all this doctrine is true now you present your body and the idea as a living sacrifice now somebody's pointed out as you well know the problem with a living sacrifice is they tend to want to crawl off that altar okay you present your body as a living sacrifice and the picture here is I don't come in and say God I present my wallet or I present my business or I present my family or God, I present my time at church. I present me, which is a picture of everything that I am, and he says, "It is an act uh, by your spiritual worship." One of the translations says, "It's a reasonable service." The mean the word literally means it's the only logical thing to do. Think through think it through with me now. If Jesus Christ died in the cross for his people, if by God's grace and mercy He's brought you to a point where you recognize this, if you're now His child, then the only logical thing to do is to begin to live that way. We used to use the illustration, it doesn't work as much anymore, but when the girls were small, I could bring ten kids in here and line them up, and I could say to you, uh, pick out Sarah. And you wouldn't even struggle. You'd go, what's that one right there with the round face and the little freckles and the little glasses? That's that Sarah right there. And I would say to you, how do you know that Sarah? And you would say the obvious. She looks like you. What Paul's saying here in its real simplest form is that as children of God, we ought to start to look like our Father. There ought to be a sense in which people look at us and they go... He's got to be one of those Christians. She's got to belong to God because she's starting to look like Him. By that they mean she's starting to act like Him. Starting to see the world as God sees the world. And that's Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One of the translations, I think it's the Philip says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't be conformed. The idea here, and Paul's speaking of what apparently is a problem that's developed in these Romans, and that is, they're starting to look like the world. He's writing this, and the language is structured in such a way that it implies that there's already a problem that's developing in these Romans. Well, the application to us is very clear. Don't you start... To act like the world. Don't you start to look like the world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. The, uh, I think it's the Living uh, Bible says, don't copy the behavior of the world. Now, when we hear this, we think almost instinctively of uh, 1 John uh, chapter 2. Don't love the world, nor the things of the world, if the love of the world if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When we use word world, we use it in one of three ways generally. Either to speak of the planet. Is that what he's saying here? Don't love the planet. Well, no, that doesn't work. Mankind, don't love mankind. Well we know that's not it. The third way it's used is to speak of an age or a belief system or of values. That's exactly what he's saying here. Don't love the values don't love the philosophy don't love the thinking of this world if anyone loves the world he says if anyone loves the world the love of the Father is not in him this is interesting and I don't think it, it, it I'd love to think it was clever I don't know that it is but but here's what he's saying John is saying there is a love that God hates God hates if you love this world so important for us to grasp this. God's got no problem with you being a, a sensitive to the environment and the planet. God's got no problem with you loving uh, people. In fact, God says, here's what I want you to do positively. I want you to love God, love me, love my word, love people, but I want you to hate this world's system. Now, he comes back and here's what he says: If you love the world's system, then you don't love God. Now, you've got to do a little... I can't apply that. You've got to apply that in your own life. Verse 16, 1 John 2. For all the things that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life is not from God, but it's from this world. What he's talking about there, in many ways, is just evil. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. I want you to take a look at this with me. You don't have to flip there. I'll be happy to do it for you. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter, I once did a, a, a talk called The Most Important Chapter in the Bible. And uh, I don't know that that's true. I don't know that you could say that. But Genesis chapter 3, I think, if you understand Genesis chapter 3, it unlocks so many things for you. Because Genesis chapter 3 explains why they're suffering, why babies die, why marriages break up, why deals don't go through why you get sick, why there's pain, why there's agony. Genesis chapter 3 helps you understand a lot of stuff. Genesis chapter 2 ends with Adam and Eve in the garden. They're naked and they're having a good time. Genesis chapter 4 begins with uh, uh, Cain and Abel and strife and anger and murder. And if you rip out Genesis 3, you've got to go, what in the world happened? What in the world took place? And Genesis 3 is the answer to all of that. Well, it begins with Satan. Again, let me just read to you Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you should not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you should not eat it or touch it lest you die. God has appeared. God said, listen, and, and, and I remember the first time I heard this, I thought, jeepers, there, here's this tree, and God says, don't eat from it. And I'm thinking, there's a real test. But it's not a tree in the middle of a desert. It's a tree in the middle of paradise. In the middle of this lush orchard and, and vegetation. He said, you can eat all over. This isn't about diet. You can eat all over, but don't eat from that one tree. And now Satan comes along and says, Gee, did God really say that? Here's what he says, verse 4. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. Satan comes dead against what God has said. And then he says, Here's the deal. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, and you'll know good and evil. Here's what happens uh, Satan comes along and says, God's just, I don't understand why God doesn't want you to do that. Boy, that doesn't make sense to me. I think God's probably a little jealous. That's what it is. I mean, if God really loved you, would He say don't do something like that? Verse 6. When the woman saw... What's interesting, and I I have not been through Genesis 3 for a long time, so I'm shooting a little loose here. But I remember when I studied it, I wondered, don't have an answer, if there was a time gap between Satan saying this and the woman reacting. I remember one of the great questions we had was how long do you think it was between the time man was created and man fell? Those are great questions to ponder. My my sense is not a lot. But I don't know. Now the woman's there. There's the fruit. The word is planted in her mind. And it said, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit and she ate it. Listen. When the woman saw the tree was good, lust to the flesh, it would taste good, feel good, saw that it was a delight to the eyes, lust to the eyes, saw that the tree was desirable to make her wise, boastful pride of life, she took it and she ate it. Look it. You take a football team And you put them in a huddle, and you come up to the line of scrimmage. The other side doesn't know the play you're going to run. That's to your advantage. Uh, I was never much of a a football player. uh, But during my uh, high school time, I quarterbacked the second team. And and, and the the problem with that is that all week long, the first team beat the snot out of you. That's the problem with this. And what would happen is... Every once in a while, we would run a play, and we would run it successfully. And at the completion of this play, you would hear the coach say, run it again. Well, there was a a problem with that. The element of surprise was gone. So for me, it wasn't particularly hard, because I could take the snap and come back, and I had to hand it off, and the running back would go, and obviously this time, there'd be three guys right in that hole, because everybody on the field knew exactly what we were going to do. And he'd say, run it again. And, I, and for me, it was kind of, hey, I just take the snap and give it away. But he'd say, run it again. And I'd look at that halfback and go, because oh. this is going to be a long day for him. And the object is, if I know, it's in baseball. You know, when you see that guy and he's just, and he's doing all these things and they're trying to steal the sign, or a runner on second, you got the catcher down, and he's flashing sign, and the runner on second is trying to steal the sign. The idea is if I can steal the sign, I know the pitch is coming, I've got a huge advantage. Well, I'm going to give you a huge advantage today. Satan is going to come at you, and I can already tell you what he's going to attack you with. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. That's it. you got his playbook. He's so confident, because he started with Eve, He's so confident that in the desert that's exactly what he did when he came to Jesus. He tempted him with the lust of the flesh. Eat this bread. Lust of the eyes. Look at all this. It'll be yours. Uh, Jump off this and we'll we'll worship you. The boastful pride of life. See The things in this world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, they're not from the Father. They're from the world. And the world's passing away. And also, it's lust. And the effort again and again and again is for you and I to understand... The things of God. Now, verses. Let me just stay on this a second. Verses the things of the world. We are uh, in church. Are studying First Corinthians right now. First Corinthians chapter one, verse eight. Here's here's what Paul writes. I'm sorry. First Corinthians chapter one, verse eighteen. Paul writes this: For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolish, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Uh, Paul says, I- I'm going to give you something that identifies everybody in the world. You're either perishing or you're saved. He's talking about the word of of the cross, which includes all of God's redemptive story, but especially the crucifixion. He says that's foolishness to those who are perishing, to those that aren't Christians. And you know what? You need to understand that. One of the things I think a great things about Christmas is, if you're sensitive to it, you have endless opportunities to share your faith. I'm driving down the street uh, the other night, going home. It's like 10:30, and I got on a, a KEZ because they're playing Christmas music, and and Heart The Herald Angels Sing" is out there, and you're singing "God and Sin are Reconciled," and they come right after with one of my favorite songs, "Mary Did You Know," and right after that with "Breath of Heaven." I mean, you just got endless great songs about the gospel message, and the guys at KEZ—they don't even probably most of them don't even have a clue what this is saying—and you see it all around you. But be warned as you share your faith, this sounds pretty silly. It sounds... uh, uh, New American Standard word foolish. The word means literally silly. I'll take it to our It sounds stupid, really. Put yourself... Because some of you have been Christians so long, you forget a little bit about what it was like when you weren't a Christian. Now, I remember the first time a guy sat down and shared the Gospel with me. And I thought this guy was nuts. I mean, listen. I, I, listen, just listen to the facts. Here are the facts. There's a God, and this God, and there's only one of them, but He actually has three personalities, three persons. And one of those persons came to earth and was born. It wasn't beam me down or mark from orc. It, 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 it came in the flesh as a baby but in a little unconventional way because it was a virgin birth. It wasn't just a regular birth. And was God, and yet man at the same time, and yet as a God He grew, and yet He knew, and yet He lived a perfect life, and then they killed Him. And then when they killed Him, something took place there that when He died, He died for the sin of people who would leave 2,000 years later. And then they buried Him. That's what they do with dead people. And then He rose from the dead. And then He made Himself visible to different people. And then one day, He was talking to His disciples and He just took off for heaven just like the space shuttle. Really? I mean, that's an interesting theory. i I, I, I got to tell you something. Doesn't that sound pretty stupid? Doesn't that sound pretty foolish? I think it does. I mean, if you're lost and somebody comes to you, that doesn't make any sense. What makes sense... By the way, it's true though. What makes sense is religion. Religion always makes sense because religion's made and created and invented by man. So man always creates something that makes sense to him. Here's how you know and see a contrast between religion and Orthodox Christianity. Religion always magnifies man... Christianity always magnifies God. Religion always minifies God. Or, or I'm sorry, yeah, minifies God. Uh, Christianity always minifies man. Always. When you look at the things of this world, and you look at, at philosophy, it always, at least on the surface, starts to make sense to you. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, "...the whole drift toward modernism that has blighted the church of God and has nearly destroyed its living gospel may be traced to an hour when man began to turn from revelation to philosophy." He doesn't mean the book of Revelation. He says there was a time when we were uh, uh, committed to the Word of God when we turned away from that and to philosophy. All of a sudden, Christianity is tainted all of a sudden we're talking about you know here's what I heard I heard a guy just today on Dr. Laura say uh, uh, the other day I was I, a true story I'm talking to a guy one day and he's saying I'm, I'm talking to my aunt or my grandmother and uh, she said you know the Bible says and then she laid this quote out and he said I don't that doesn't sound right to me and she paused for a moment and she said to him you know what that that was that was Paul Harvey this morning. Well, all of a sudden we start quoting the Bible when we're actually quoting Paul Harvey. I was telling my brother, um, oh, a few months ago, I was uh, at uh, hitting golf balls and I'm hitting balls and all of a sudden I recognized the guy down next to me was Paul Harvey. And so he hit a shot and I said, "Good shot." And he looked at me like I had eight eyes. I mean, it was like, it's like, see, I think I've heard that before. And Get away from me, you little punk, was kind of what he communicated to me. But, but here's the deal. We're quoting all of these people around us and we're holding them up and they fail to compete with the truth that God has for us. Winston Churchill said this, because now what we're talking about is knowledge and truth, knowledge and wisdom. Churchill said this, Certain it is that while men are gathering knowledge and power with ever-increasing speed, their virtue and wisdom have not shown any notable improvement as the centuries have rolled. Under sufficient stress, starvation, tear, passion, even cold, intellectual frenzy, modern man we know so well will do the most terrible deeds and his modern woman will back him up. Vance Packer says it this way, A person can be high in learning ability and memory and still remain a fool. The two do not add up, either to brilliance or wisdom in thinking. Until someone comes up with a pill for wisdom, we might better aspire to become more humane than a more brainy society. Here's what they're saying. We get all this human wisdom around us and it's foolishness. That's what Paul's saying. It's foolishness laid down to the wisdom of God. God's ways are higher than our ways. And when we look at this whole issue of salvation, we understand that salvation is from God. So that now, here's what we're saying. Try to tie it together here. Because, therefore, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you immerse your mind. That your life action begins with a change of belief. That as your mind changes, your life changes. What we're talking about is the Gospel. And I guess what I'm saying to you in this time of the year is what the Apostle writes for himself in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. where He says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the Gentile. I'm saying to you, go out into this world. You're the light of this world. And as you live this light, what happens is you have the opportunity to share the gospel. Share it boldly. And understand, understand that some are going to ridicule you because the message you preach is ridiculous to them. But it's true. George Washington Carver was a uh, agricultural chemist. You know him. He introduced hundreds of uses... For agricultural products like the peanut and the soybeans sweet potatoes Henry Ford once tried to hire him and he refused uh, Thomas Edison offered him a six figure income a lot of money in that day and age and he said no in 1921 he testified before a senate subcommittee here's just a part of the testimony a senator said to him how can you learn all these things and Carver responded from an old book the senator, what book? Carver, the Bible. The senator, does the Bible talk about peanuts? Carver said, no, sir, but it tells me about the God who made the peanut. And I asked him to show me what to do with the peanut, and he did. <laughs> Carver talks in his uh, own journals ab- about a conversation that he had with God. Here's what Carver says. Years ago, I went to the laboratory and I said, Dear God, please tell me what the universe was made for. And God answered, you want to know too much for that little uh, mind of yours. Ask for something more your size, little man. And then I asked, please God, tell me what man was made for. And again, God replied, you're still asking too much. Cut down to the on the extent and improve on the intent. So I said, please God, will you tell me what you made the peanut for? That's better. But even that's infinite. What do you want to know about the peanut? God, can I make milk out of the peanut? What kind of milk do you want? Good Jersey milk or just plain boarding house milk? Jersey milk. Then Carver says, and then God taught me to take the peanut apart, to put it together again, and out of that process has come forth all these products. See, the foolishness of God is beyond any wisdom of man. You need to understand, and I don't know where you go when this meeting's over. I don't know what office you go to or what industry you're involved in, uh, or whether you just go uh, back home and you're about to, the very hard work of being at home. I don't know. I know this. The greatest asset you have in the rest of your life is the revealed Word of God. See, this is what you take to the marketplace. I just don't really know. And, and there's benefit uh, there's benefit to read books on management and people give me a lot of that stuff and I read some of that and some of it's real good. But you know what I found? The stuff that's really good, it all flows out of these ideas right here. Tom Peters revolutionized customer service with the idea that it's important to serve the customer. Well, really? I got kind of got that right out of here. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. See, these principles in your life are the greatest assets you have. If you're an employee, let me tell you what an employer is looking for an honest person who will work hard, who's concerned about other people, who will put others first instead of themselves, who will do an honest day's work for an honest wage, who will show up on time. You know what that is? That's a Christian. If you're an employer, I'll tell you the greatest asset you have. It's this book. You know what employees want? They want to be recognized. They want to be loved. They want to be cared for. They want to be treated fairly and honestly. Now, let me tie this all together real quickly. You're the light of the world. Why is that important? Let me give you four things, and we've got, according to my clock, about six minutes for it. Number one, when we're the light of the world, it glorifies God. That's what we heard in Matthew chapter 5. Remember what he said? Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and they glorify the Fathers in heaven. So now people see you. They see you live a Christ-like life. They glorify God. They're drawn to Him. They look at you and they say, there's something different about you. There's something unique about you. How often have you been in a setting and you can just see somebody, maybe hear them say a few words, or watch how they act, and you go, that guy's got to be a Christian. She's got to be a Christian. Look at the way she's handling that. And so you can come along and say, you know what, it really isn't me. You know, I'm naturally not like this. Uh, my natural tendency is not to get mad, it's to get even. But God told me to forgive and what you're seeing that you see is good, that's God in my life. You're the light of the world, and by being the light of the world, it glorifies God. Here's the second thing. It gives evidence that you're truly His. In Ephesians 4, Paul said this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He said, I want you to walk and talk and act like the calling that God's placed in your life. And the calling that he speaks here is the calling to salvation. There's debates that rage in uh, theological circles. And i got to tell you, I don't really get this debate. This debate uh, goes along these lines. There's a side, it's a very strong side, that says all you got to do is believe that Jesus is who He said He was, and He's your Savior, and you're in heaven. There's another side that says, yes, When I believe that He's who He said He was, indeed He becomes my Savior, but He also becomes my Lord. And so the debate boils down into its real simplest forms is, does my life have to change in order for me to go to heaven? It seems to me that the the Scripture doesn't stutter. The Scripture says, obviously there'll be change in your life. He said, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You will walk this way. Then He says this, do it with all humility. I presume this is true. But I came across this yesterday. In his uh, footnote on this passage, MacArthur writes this, Humility is a term not found in the Roman or Greek vocabularies of Paul's day. The Greek word was apparently created by Christians. And I read that and I thought, Wow! In other words, we come along and we say, you're to be humble, and they say, that word's not even in our vocabulary. The essence of Christ and who He was, where He says, you have the mind in you that was in also, also in Christ Jesus, and it was a mind that was a serving mind, a humble mind, I bring that to the secular ideas, and they say, we don't even, we don't even think that way. I thought that was a great picture. You go out into this world. Why we have a word for humility? We don't have much of a definition for it. We go to a conference, and the conference says, "Look out for number one. Look out for you. You watch the bottom line. You better get some security around you. You better tighten this business down. You better get by the door so if somebody walks out with a product, ar, 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 ar. you better get some cameras in here. You better tighten this baby up." You better get this thing secure. You better look out for yourself. Don't you be, you better cover your tail on this one. And Jesus comes along and says, You know what? You better just serve. Let me say it again. We don't even have that word. I just, I think that is so cool. Well, that's not even in our vocabulary. What in the world are you talking about? I want you to see that's how foreign the Christian message is when it's lived out to the world. It doesn't make sense. When Jesus says, you want to be first in My kingdom? What would we say? Well, you better get a degree. Better work hard. Better really grind. Put in more time. Climb up that ladder. Don't be afraid to nudge that guy off because you want to get to the top. Jesus says, if you want to get to the top in My kingdom, you do it by just going to the bottom and surf. See, when you begin to be the light of the world... You give evidence that you're truly His. Here's the third thing. Now you become obedient. Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians verse 10 and Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. And I don't have a ton of time, but both of them basically say this. You now begin to produce fruit, and the fruit is a picture of the obedience in your life. Glorify the Father in heaven. You do it through your good works. I'm now obedient, so in my life, my life begins to change. There's that little thing, those little bracelets, WWJD, what would, what would Jesus, I always thought it was what would Jimmy do, Buffett, but it's what would Jesus do, what would Jesus do, and then we have this whole thing, what would Jesus do here, and and, and uh, I guess, but, but where it all breaks down for me, so Jesus comes along and sees a blind man, here's what he would do, and he heals him, well, that doesn't work for me. I can't do that. See, the question is, what would Jesus have you do? Now, the implication is a fine one. Think about this. What's the Christ-like thing to do? That's the issue. And that becomes a driving force. I had a guy the other day, and he said, uh, uh, I, I just want to, I'd like to meet with you, and I want to tell you, I want to know what Jesus wants me to do. And I said, well, that's easy. And he said, well, don't you want to hear the problem? I said, not really. And he said, well, well, but how do you know? How can you tell me what to do if you don't know the problem? I said, it's real easy. God wants you to obey Him. That's what God wants. He wants you to obey Him. And he said, well, no, no. It's deeper than that. He said, I'm trying to figure out well, where to go to work, where to live, da-da-da-da-da. And I said, well, God wants you to obey Him. And he said, well, God doesn't talk about it in here. And I said, perfect. Then do whatever you want to do. If God doesn't have an opinion on it, then why don't you do whatever you want to do? And, and, and I saved him and myself An hour. Okay, Just go do whatever you want to do. This isn't that hard. You see how this works? It's not that hard. God wants one thing from you. His obedience. If he ha- your obedience. If He hasn't spoken to it, then you make sure your life is squared away and then you do what you want to do because He changes your wanter to conform to His idea. Here's the last thing about this. When you live this way and you're the light of the world, you become a witness. That's hopefully how this begins to tie together. Uh, Colossians uh, 4.2 Devote yourself to prayer keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving uh, praying at the same time for us as well that God may open uh, open to us a door for the world so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Verse 5 Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders making the most of every opportunity let your speech always be seasoned with grace as it were. He says, make the most of every opportunity toward those who aren't Christians. Do you understand that that you're to take this gospel message to the world? You're to proclaim it. You're to live it. But if your life life and your action does not match that speech, they're going to write you off as a hypocrite. I'm to be the light of the world because it glorifies the Father. It gives evidence that my life has changed. It demonstrates obedience and it comes to this very point. It's the door that God uses frequently to open the hearts of other men and women in your sphere of influence. As you're thinking about this time at Christmas and the incarnation of Christ, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, as you're thinking about that, will you understand that He said I'm the light of the world, but He says now you're the light of the world. There's a sense, and you obviously understand the difference here, because you are not God. But there's a sense in which you now are His hands and His feet working your way through this culture and this society. So don't be conformed to this world. Don't love the things of this world. Don't love the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Don't be conformed, but be transformed from that Greek word we get the English word metamorphosis. Literally, there's an outward change that represents the inward change that's taken place in your life. Well, what would stop you in that process? Next week, we're going to talk about uh, some of those things. We'll take a look at them. And then the last week, right before Christmas, uh, we're going to talk about how to know if you're really a Christian or not. seems to me that's a very important issue for us. Uh, And it really does tie together our last seven or eight weeks that we've had had together. So we'll take a look at it. Father, help us see this. Take this word, apply it to our... Thanks for the men and women that are here today. It's... uh, That time of year where it's dark in the morning and nice and cold and that bed feels awfully good. God, thank You that for whatever reason in their life, You brought them here today. God, I pray it was a time that was beneficial to them and that You use to open eyes and hearts to build into their life a mindset that says, I'm different. I'm different. Not because there's something valuable in and intrinsically valuable of me, but I'm different because the Creator God of the universe indwells me now through His Spirit because I know His Son Jesus in a personal way. God, that's my prayer. We pray it to You this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week!